podcasts and you can uh, catch up on the first two parts. Nehemiah is a man who is the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. King Artaxerxes is the most powerful man on the face of the earth at the time that this story is written. He is the king of Babylon. And the people of Israel have been taken into exile in Babylon. The home city of Jerusalem and its walls, its gates have been destroyed. And while in the land of Babylon, God speaks to this man whose name is Nehemiah. And uh, Nehemiah hears from God. And as we talked about in the first two messages of this series The message that Nehemiah heard from God literally broke his heart. So much so, the Bible tells us that when Nehemiah heard about the walls of Jerusalem being torn down, its gates ravaged with fire, it moved him to weeping, and it also moved him into a four-month period of prayer. He literally wept and prayed for four months. And at the end of the four months is where we take up today's part three in chapter number two, verse number one. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face, why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. You see, friends, Nehemiah not only knew how to watch and pray and, and weep. He also knew how to pray and wait. I've entitled this message, Waiting. I, I'm quite sure that many of us have found this to be true, that probably one of the most difficult things in the life of a believer is to wait on God. We get something in our heart, and and we want to rush out and make it happen, right? But according to what Nehemiah has shown us in these first two chapters, we, like him, should wait and pray first. Now, I gave you a quote last week, and I'm going to give it to you again this morning because I think it's important. There's nothing that we can do until we pray. There's going to be much to do after we pray. That's, that's really important because, you see, in my own life, my style is to act first. 
Come on now, I'm not the only one. My style is to act first and do things, everything in my power. And when that doesn't work, eventually I'll get around to asking God to to help me. Why do I do that? Because we live in a culture that wants what we want, and we want it now. Uh, We've grown up in, you've heard me say this before in other settings, we grow up in what I like to call a zap-it culture. We want popcorn, we zap it in a microwave, rather than the old style of using popcorn and oil in a skillet. How many of you remember those days? Just a few of us. These kids are looking at me like... We, we, we uh, want to get a tan, we go to a tanning booth. Or better yet, better yet, I just saw this. Some of you are probably familiar with it. I don't watch these kinds of things. A spray-on tan. I've never heard of such a thing. A spray-on tan, you just spray it on your skin, and rather than going, out inside, going outside in the sun and getting a natural tan, you're already tanned. Now, the reason I don't follow those kinds of things is because I don't tan. God never gave me the kind of complexion that would tan. It just turns into one big freckle, if you know what I mean. Well, this zappet mentality, I believe, extends to even bigger things in our lives. We want a big house. We want it right now. We want a new car. We just finance it. We need furniture. We need decor in our house. And, uh, you know, we want it just like mom and dad. We want our houses just like mom and dad had it when we left the nest. You know what I mean? And so what do we do? We, we finance it and pay for it ten times over the amount that it was originally priced at. Because we live in a zap it mentality. Now, you'll notice I used the word we. My generation is, in this description, is part of this. We're part of the zappet mentality. And, and I see those same traits in myself. You know, uh, this, this culture gets in debt uh, over their heads with credit card debt, and bill collectors start calling. And, you know, when the bill collectors start calling, you know what they want. They want your money, and they want it now, right? Well, I, I say to our young families that are here this morning, I've learned that the journey is half the fun. Uh, you don't need to have it all in, in the first few years of marriage and then have nowhere to go from there. I was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago as I was preparing this. You know, Brenda and I started our marriage in the house that my folks lived in when I was born. It was a house probably eight to 900 square feet. And it did have a basement. I guess it was more accurately called a cellar. Brenda and I never went down there because a couple of times when I had, it had snakes down there. And so we, we decided it would be better to take a chance on the tornadoes rather than to go to the cellar, cellar you know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, I, I remember right after we got married, we bought a, a cheap couch and chair for our living room. And actually, we had to buy the chair twice because we bounced the first one out of the bed of the pickup on the way home, and that set us back for a while. But here's Brenda, a city girl, now forced to live 30 miles out in the country, 
And at that time, I worked for my dad on the farm for three bucks an hour. And before you start laughing at that, that seemed pretty generous back, back in that time. We, we thought we were, we were really doing something. Um, the house was old, but we made it livable. And I, I, I say livable, but I, I'll never forget, and I, I, I usually remember the exact date of this, but it escapes me now. I know that it was 1977, and... Uh, it was in February of 1977, and that house that we had made sort of livable, uh, here was Brenda and I living there, and she was two weeks away from being due with Tara, and we had a dust storm, and the dust was so thick that it almost looked at like nighttime at 12 o'clock noon, and that old house was... Uh, not insulated well. Uh, the blowing dust filtered under the cracks of the windowsills, and it was to the point where we had to tie handkerchiefs around our necks to cover our mouth and our nose to keep from breathing the dust in. And I'll never forget when that storm ended, there was fine dust an inch deep on the inside of the windowsill. We had a, we had a room air conditioner in one of the living room windows, and that was the entire cooling we had for the house. We had a floor furnace that would get so hot that when our kids came along, we had to put safety gates around it so they wouldn't step on it and get burned. So when my parents retired in 1980, they moved to Garden City and we moved into the house that my parents built when I was six years old. And we thought we'd moved into a mansion. We didn't have to pay rent to live there. We thought we were living in high cotton. And what I'm getting to in telling you this story is, at that time, I basically took over the farming operation from my dad. Um, I say he retired, and I say that with tongue-in-cheek. Uh, he felt like the sun couldn't come up on the farm without him being out there. But for the most part, I took over the management of the farm, and uh, in, in doing that, I had to buy a new four-wheel drive truck. I eventually bought a new John Deere 4840 tractor. Bought a new corn planter, bought a new combine, bought a new wheat drill. And yeah, I still used some of my dad's equipment that he still owned. But, you know, it was a new day, a new way of farming. And everything had to be bigger and more efficient to get everything done. And uh, added to all of that, I had a banker that told me this. He said, Terry, you cannot afford to not buy your, the quarters of land adjacent to you that your brother and your sister own. You cannot afford to not buy it. And so I bought it. Now, for any of you who've ever purchased irrigated farmland, it wasn't cheap. And I had to drill a new irrigation well on it that was 505 foot deep. That wasn't cheap. And uh, I purchased those two quarters for my brother and sister, drilled the irrigation well. And if you'll remember, in the early 80s, those of us who were around in the early 80s, all of that was done borrowing money from the federal land bank at 13.5% interest. How many of you remember those days? 
For those of you who don't, well, let me just say this first. <laughs> Living 30 miles out in the country with what eventually would be three little girls, we had to make, the, make sure that Brenda had adequate transportation to and from town, so we financed a Chevy Blazer. And it got about 12 miles a gallon. And because it was so hard on gas, we decided to buy a more economical used Mustang that got maybe 18 miles a gallon. The truth of that is we bought it because I really wanted one. I lived, I was part of the Zappet culture, you remember. Those were good times, and I wouldn't take a million dollars for all the memories that we made during those times in our lives. But the reason I'm sharing this with you is to let those of you know who have never experienced buying land, drilling irrigation wells, buying tractors and equipment at 13.5% interest, you cannot cash flow that type of indebtedness and interest without having a bottom line that glowed with red ink. How many of our young people know what red ink means? Some of us. Well, if you don't know that, you need to find out. You need to find out because it all is a part of the Zappet mentality that I'm talking about. Now, that all took place within the first seven years of our marriage. But doing all of that carried over into the next nine years of our marriage when the financial pressures of all that investment began to take its toll on me began to take its toll on Brenda, and it took its toll on our marriage. And fortunately for us, we were praying, my folks were praying, my church friends were praying, because all of us knew that God had called me into ministry. And here I was getting deeper and deeper and more and more financially involved in a farming operation, and you just don't walk away from that and say, I don't want to do this anymore, I'm going into ministry. So we had all of these people praying who knew that God had called me into the ministry. We all knew that the day was going to come when God would say, Terry, Brenda, it's time. And somehow God would miraculously allow us to walk away from that farming operation with $18,000 in our pocket, no lingering farm debt, and all of our land still remaining in the family. That was God. But the waiting... Waiting for all of that to happen. It was awful. It was, it was terrible. It's like, God, we know what you want us to do. God, why aren't you setting the things in place to allow it to happen? The waiting. Now, again, I wouldn't trade the majority of our lives during that time for the, all the world, but... You know, here we are back in southwest Kansas. We pastored seven different churches around Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri, and Kansas. And now the Lord has blessed us more than we could have ever imagined or dreamed of making us pastors here at Trinity Faith. And I thank him for that. Who would have known it back then that we would wind up back in liberal Kansas, just about 60 miles from our farm where it all began? But here's the rest of the story. My mentality has not changed all that much from those days. As soon as I get a new phone that I like, 
they come out with a new and better one. That new computer that the church bought me two years ago, it's a dinosaur. I mean, it still functions and meets all of my needs, but you see what I'm saying? It's this idea that when I get a new one, then I'll be happy. We live with this mindset of instant gratification, and it often causes us to not be able to find the joy in the journey. There is joy in the waiting. What I'm trying to say to you is that we all have trouble waiting on the will of God for our lives. Let's go back to our Bible story. Nehemiah, he knew in his heart what he wanted to do. When he heard that story of Jerusalem being in ruins, God instantly dropped into his heart, Nehemiah, you're the one that I want to go back and rebuild those walls. So Nehemiah knew what he wanted to do, And what he was wanting to do was really asking God for something that was impossible to do. We haven't yet talked about it in this story, but it's something that's very important to the story. Because about 50 years prior to this, King Artaxerxes had led another group of Jews, actually not 50 years, less than that, but some period of time Uh, Before this, King Artaxerxes had allowed another group of Jews to return to the city of Jerusalem and began building the wall again. But the word got back to Artaxerxes that these people that he sent to Jerusalem were radicals and they were trying to stir up a revolution against his kingdom. And so he had their work stopped and the wall, what they had rebuilt of it, torn down. But they didn't stop there. He then issued a decree... That those walls would never be rebuilt. It was the law of the Medes and the Persians. And the law of the Medes and Persians meant that it could not be undone. So you see, it really was an impossible task that Nehemiah was wanting to do. But you see, we serve a God who delights in our asking him for big things impossible things. That's why I believe that we need to ask God for some big things in our lives. We need to ask God for big things in our families. We need to ask God for big things for our church. And that gives God his chance to show how faithful and how powerful he really is. You know why? Because when it comes to pass, then he gets the glory because it's very clear That only he could do such things. Most of you probably heard this before, but like I told you a couple of weeks ago, I merely recycle my jokes. But anyway, here goes. You've heard it, I'm sure. Man found a dusty old lamp, wiped it clean, and a genie popped out and said, I'm so powerful. You could ask me for anything and I can do it. Man said, Well, I've always wanted to go to Hawaii, but I'm afraid to fly. So I wish for there to be a road from the west coast to Hawaii so I can go there without flying. Well, the genie said, I may have misspoken. I don't know if I can do something that big. So why don't you ask for something else? Man thought for a minute and he said, okay. I've always wanted to understand women. How they think, what makes them tick, how to please them, and what causes their moods. 
the genie thought for a moment and said, did you want two or four lanes? (laughs) There's nothing too big for our God. For 120 days, Nehemiah is watching and weeping and waiting in prayer. 120 days. Can you imagine how a 120-day time of prayer would go over in a zappet mentality culture? It's almost unheard of. But Nehemiah prayed for 120 days. And then we come to this chapter 2 and we begin to see that this book is really one of the greatest success stories in all of human history. How many of you know that God wants you to succeed? Come on now. He wants you to succeed. The Bible term that is used for succeeding is the word prosper. Now, let me just say I'm not referring to prospering like some TV evangelists have told you prospering means. I'm talking about succeeding And doing it in a biblical way. To succeed, we need to do two things. One, we need to recognize what success really is. And then we need to learn how to do it God's way. You see, spiritual success is a whole different animal than worldly success. What God views as success and what the world views as success are two different things. What the world calls successful, God often calls A failure. By the same token, the world may look at you and say, what a failure. But God looks at you and he says, now that's a success. His ways are not like ours. His thoughts are not like ours. He's so much higher than we are in the way that we think. Success is finding and doing the will of God for your life. It may not make you rich. It may not make you famous. But in God's eyes, you will be a raving success because you're doing his will. Look at how Nehemiah's example taught us to become a success. I'm going to run through these pretty quickly, so you might want to take notes. The first thing that Nehemiah did was he verbalized his goal. And he verbalized it at the proper time. You see, in Bible times, it was common for kings to be assassinated. And one of the common ways that the assassination of a king took place was through the method of poisoning. Well, it was the cupbearer's job, Nehemiah's job to taste everything before the king did. So Nehemiah would eat and drink, and if, if he didn't keel over, then the king could have it. But history would demonstrate that the cupbearers to the kings not only were used in that capacity, but they also became unofficial advisors to the king. Because they were always present when, whenever the king was discussing business of any kind. Uh, you know, here, here's Nehemiah. He, he's on the scene. And, and on this particular day, it must have been obvious that the king's cupbearer was very burdened with something. 
He, he's been fasting for so long, I'm guessing that his, his eyes are red, his cheeks are sunken in, he's de-energized, and according to verse number 2, the king looks at Nehemiah and he notices his countenance. He said, why are you so sad? And the end of that verse says that Nehemiah, as a result, was sore afraid. Here's why. To be sad or to be negative in the presence of the king could be termed a capital offense. Eastern monarchs like King Artaxerxes were to be shielded from all types of negativity. Nehemiah could have been executed just for having a sad face. I'm not sure I'd blame him. Blame the king. Here he is, he's doing government work all day long. He's hearing about problems and then he sits down to his meal and the last thing he wants to see is being waited on by a sad sack. I just say that because that's the way negativity often affects me. But on this particular day, Nehemiah couldn't hide it any longer. Do you know why he couldn't hide it any longer? Because God's perfect timing in response to Nehemiah's waiting had arrived. Verse 4. It says that Nehemiah voiced what his goal was. And then look what he did. He, he prayed to the God of heaven. Now, why is that important? I, I like to think of that as, as one of those, how do I want to describe it? A quick arrow style prayer straight up to heaven, silently and selfily prayed. Now, I, I do that a lot in counseling sessions. Sometimes, sometimes when, I, when people ask me a question and I need to tell the truth when it's my turn to speak and I want to say it right, I'm not sure what God wants me to say, so I just quietly breathe one of those arrow-like prayers. God, help me. Give me the right words. I even do it sometimes when I'm preaching. I've done it in deacon board meetings. Uh, but oftentimes it's the case, and I, I'm, I'm looking to the Lord and I'm saying, please, God. Let my words find a place where they will be understood, where they will be received in the right way and in the right manner. Now, that kind of prayer, let me just say, will only work if it has been backed up by a lot of private prayer ahead of time. Let me give you an example. If your prayer life, all it ever consists of is those quickie prayers, you may wonder why you struggle in getting a hold of God. If you're driving through an intersection and, and you look over and see a semi running the red light, barreling toward your window, you decide it's time to pray a quickie prayer. God, help me. Let me tell you something, friends. You better be prayed up in private because there's not going to be any time to confess your sins and make things right with God and with your family members and everybody else. Make sure that you have your life in order. So quickie prayers like the one Nehemiah is praying in verse 4, they have to be backed up with a lot of private prayer. And certainly Nehemiah had done that because he'd been praying for 120 days for the right words at the right time in the right place. Here's Nehemiah, and the king asks him, why are you so sad? And all of a sudden it hits Nehemiah, Lord, this is it. This is the time. 
Don't let me blow it, God. Those are my words. Don't let me blow this. And Nehemiah is talking to the most powerful man on the earth, but he pauses to consult his real boss, his heavenly father. You know, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, who wrote the Proverbs, he said to us in Proverbs chapter 21, verse number 1, and I have, to have, a, I have a feeling that Solomon took this from what happened here in Nehemiah. Because Solomon says this in verse number 1 of Proverbs 21, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God changes the hearts of kings. God changes the hearts of leaders. And Nehemiah here verbalizes his goal, and he does it at the proper time. And secondly, he does it in the proper spirit. And he did it in a powerful statement. Look at the last part of verse 5. It says there these words, that I may rebuild it. That I may rebuild it. Here's a key to success. Verbalize your goals clearly and concisely. People who transfer their thoughts and dreams into actual words are far more likely to reach those goals than those who don't. Amazingly, this is where motivational speakers make lots of money. They agree with what the Bible says on this. We need to write down our goals because doing so will crystallize those goals in our hearts. Wouldn't you know what ex-Beatle George Harrison said it this way? If you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. Maybe I need to say that again. If you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. The opposite of that is if you know where you're going, you'll know the right road to take. Okay? You know, when Brenda and I were we're preparing for, to plant that church for ex-convicts down in downtown Wichita. We went to a church planting boot camp. And while we were there, we had to write down our goals for this church that we felt that God wanted us to plant. Well, we more than felt it. We knew it. And here's what we wrote, and I'll never forget it. We want to provide a place of love and accountability for the formerly incarcerated in order to help them reintegrate into their communities and develop new lifestyles that will keep them out of prison. That was our goal. That was our stated goal. And we saw that exact thing happen in the lives of men and women over the course of the next eight years that we pastored that church. We stated our goal, we wrote it down, and we saw it come to pass. You ought to have some clearly spelled out goals in your life. We need to set some goals for our lives. We need to set some goals for our families and for our church. And then we should announce our goals, just as Brenda and I had to announce our goals in front of the rest of that boot camp that was there, boot camp of church planters, because that helps transfer the burden to other people who will help us reach our goal. Now, I have to confess to you that I often hold inside of me what I believe to be lofty goals. Why do I do that? Because I'm afraid that I won't reach them. Uh, Belinda can vouch for what I'm getting ready to say. A lot of times when we've had fundraisers for certain things like sending the kids to camp or, you know, our fundraisers, I, I'm, I'm in my office and I'm thinking, this is how much we need 
I'm just not sure we can reach that. And so I kind of keep it under my hat that I'm doubting. And without failure, amazingly, you folks reach that goal every time. Every time. It's not failed one time. So what I'm saying to you is, We need to share those goals. We need to clearly spell them out. We need to write them down. So I'm going to give you a couple of goals that we as a church, I believe, need to reach. One, some of you may not be aware of this, but our children's pastor, Melissa Garza, she's not here this morning, so I can talk about her. She is transitioning out of the children's ministry. She is transitioning to become our youth minister. God's just done some amazing things in Melissa's heart through church camp this summer. And, and as wonderful as that is, it leaves us with a hole. We need to set a goal of being able to afford a church pastor, a children's pastor to our staff before the fall gets here. Now, board members, don't let any of your heads explode in hearing me say that to a congregation. But This is a goal that we need to set. Now, I'm not going to talk about raising money. That's not what I'm doing. What what I'm saying to you is, as long as we keep goals to ourselves, there's no one to know whether we hit it or not. No one to hold us accountable. You know, back back when I was working in the prison in Ellsworth, and I I always say it that way now because I don't want to say back when I was in prison in Ellsworth. Back when I was working in prison, in Ellsworth, Kansas, it happened to be at the time when the State Department of Corrections decided no more smoking in prison. Now, how many of you know that proved to be a problem in prison? And so, part of my task of being a part of that faith-based ministry in the prison was making sure that our guys that were a part of that program were no longer smoking. And so, I'd be walking down the way to the, 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 the chapel outside, and these guys would see me coming, and instantly their hand would go behind their back, but there'd be this trail of smoke, you know, going up behind them. And, and we gave them a three-month probationary period. We weren't going to punish them for three months. But as we got to the end of the three months, it was time for the guys to give up smoking. And, and, and you know, I, I'd see them coming, and I'd kind of grin at him when I saw that trail of smoke filtering up behind them. And I'd, I'd, there'd be two or three of them, and one of them would say to me, Terry, I, I've not been smoking now for, for two months and 20 days. The other one standing next to him would look at me with a grin on his face, and he'd say, I've been smoked three, three now for about 20 minutes. And the other one who had the trail of smoke said, uh, I have to be somewhere right now. <laughs> their goal was to quit but it was agonizing for them they had to have some of us who'd hold them accountable sometimes it takes the help of other people to reach certain goals and nehemiah needed this king artaxerxes permission he needed his provision he needed his assurance of protection for the journey that would take him back to jerusalem he needed the backing of his fellow hebrews to get the work done So when the moment came for Nehemiah to state his goal, he gave what I call his mission statement. He said that I may rebuild 
the walls. When people tried to discourage him, what did he do? He went back to his mission statement and said that I may rebuild the walls. He kept that ever before him. His opposition would try to dissuade him. They would try to distract him. They would try to divert his attention. They would try to depress him with the slowness and the the inability to do a good job. But Nehemiah never let it detract from what his goal was. That I may rebuild the walls. You see, God had dropped that mission statement into Nehemiah's life. Can I just say this? How many of you have seen the bumper sticker that says... God said it, I believe it, that settles it. You seen that? You need to take that off of your vehicle if you have it on there. Because here's the truth. If God said it, it don't matter if you believe it or not, it's settled. God had spoken this to Nehemiah. Nehemiah had wept and prayed over it for four months. And even though he faced opposition, even though he... He faced distractions. He never lost sight of his goal. There you go. Now here's the amazing thing about it. And I'm going to cut to the chase a little bit. We'll talk more about this in later messages of this series. Nehemiah prayed for four months. And the walls were rebuilt in 52 days. Prayed for four months, and the walls were rebuilt in less than half that time. What should that tell us about the importance of prayer? You know, for those of you who weren't here last Sunday, I gave an invitation at the end. There were 50 people lined up around these altars saying that they were waiting on a miracle from God. How many of you are still waiting? Keep waiting. If God drops it in your heart that that's what you have need of, just trust, entrust it to God. Just be willing to wait. Lose this zap it mentality that I want what I want and I want it now. What goals is God wanting to drop into your heart? What goals does he want you to aspire to in your spiritual life? What goals does God want for your family? What goals does God want for your home, for your finances, for your ministry? Again, personal story. I was 16 years old, and back in those days, it was not common at all for churches to have youth pastors, hired youth pastors. And so, we had gone through two youth pastors. They, they came, they, they served their time, did a great job, um, and God called them on some ministry somewhere else. And so after going through two youth pastors, when the second one left, uh, he left primarily because he was from Cincinnati, Ohio, and southwest Kansas was like sending him to Mars. (laughs) He just didn't like the area, 
And it showed all over his ability to minister to the youth, of which I was one. And so when he left, our pastor and the board says, we're not bringing in another youth pastor. We're going to do it ourselves. Well, the truth of the matter was that there were only myself and three other youth that really wanted to even be a part of the youth group. Four of us total. Two of them I didn't particularly like. (laughs) And here we are given the task of, of leading a youth group. Well, those other three, they elected me to lead the group. Now, I confess to you, I had no clue what I was doing. I didn't have any training. I didn't have very many prospective youth that were excited about being part of a youth group. But me, along with those other three people, Jeff and Patty and Denise. Patty and Denise were the two I didn't care for. We purposed that we were going to start meeting as a group. And we were going to see a viable youth group come to pass in our church. Fast forward 12 years. After having led those young people for 12 years, after having gotten married and bringing Brenda into leading that group with me, after our church had gone through two church splits, we had a youth group of more than 60 young people. We were raising funds to support missionaries around the world to the tune of $10,000 a year from the youth group. Not only that, but we were taking fully funded ski trips as a youth group every winter. All because we set a goal and we hit it. But using that same logic... If you aim at nothing, you're going to hit nothing. So I'm closing, and I want to say this to you. We need to get excited. We need to get focused. We need to get together. We need to get busy. We need to get on board. We need to get faithful and hit the goals that God drops into our hearts. And I can't tell you what those goals are for each one of you. And I'm sure that there are some of us here this morning that need to set some personal goals, like reading your Bible daily, like praying daily, like witnessing to someone every week, bringing someone to church with you, leading someone to Jesus, discipling someone who's come to Jesus. Increasing your giving, praying with a purpose, making yourself available to do the work of ministry. Oh, here's a good one. Brenda likes this one. Improving your marriage. Can I just, you know what, having said that, I'm going to tell you this. Just about a month ago, Brenda and I got real about some things going on in our marriage. And we purposed that we were going to work on those things. And I'm telling you, God has shown up in that effort. He has. You see, 
Folks, I put my pants on one leg at a time, just like you do. Just because I have an REV in front of my name doesn't elevate me to some place where I don't go through the same stuff you do. We have problems. We have issues. But we have a big God. And we need to ask God for some of his goals to be imparted to our lives. I didn't even get through my list of possible goals. Improving your marriage, start saving money, breaking a bad habit. Oh, here's a good one. Bringing a carload of kids to vacation Bible school. Those are just a few that came to my mind. I could probably think of some more if I took my time. But here's the most important thing. Take the example of Nehemiah. Pray about that goal. And then, and then, be willing to wait. Worship team, would you come please? Wait for God to open the door. And when he does, go for it. You remember what we said last week? God plus you is a majority. Doesn't matter what anybody else says. If God drops it in your heart, you and God can bring it to pass. He just needs your availability. Would you bow with me, please? Lord Jesus, I know that there are things in my life that you'd like to do in and through me, a number of which I'm in the process of, a number also of which, if I'm patient, you have yet to accomplish through me. And Jesus, I know that that is true for every person in this room. If you didn't have anything left for us to accomplish on this earth, being a loving, merciful God, I don't, I don't believe that you'd leave us here to just languish in the increasingly filthy world that we live in. You'd take us on home to glory. But because I believe that you do have a purpose for each and every one of us that are still here living and breathing earthly air today. I think there's a number of us, Lord, that you need to drop some goals in our hearts. Goals that are personal, goals for our families, goals for our church. Maybe some goals that seem so impossible to reach that we're almost discouraged by even thinking about them. But Lord, you use Nehemiah to accomplish an impossible task and you, you paved the way for him to move toward that goal through a pagan king. You changed the heart of a pagan king to help Nehemiah 
accomplish a goal. Let me just ask you something, friends, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. How big is your God? Do you believe that God can do the impossible? Can you believe, do you believe that God can do what you think to be impossible? Hear his word this morning. I delight in doing what men think to be impossible. And now you need to ask God. God, here I am. You know my talents. You know my abilities. You know my giftings. You're able to give me other talents, abilities, and giftings if you so choose. But what I'm saying to you this morning, God, is here I am. Whatever you see in me that you can use, I'm here. Would you just do that this morning in the quietness of your eyes being closed and you're in prayer? Just ask God. Just tell him, Lord, here I am. Use me for your purposes. Allow God to drop some goals in your heart. And then wait. Would you stand with me, please? I asked the question earlier for those of you who came forward last week saying that you were in need of a miracle. For those of you who came forward last week with that need... And you're still waiting. I want you to just come just like you did last week. Just stand across the front of this building. We're not going to anoint you and pray for you this morning unless you just want to be. But what I'm wanting from you is your commitment to wait on God. Your commitment to say, Jesus, here I am. Use me for your glory. Now, can I just tell you, that can be a frightening thing to say to God. But it can also be the most rewarding experience of your life. And you serve a big God. And you know what he's dropped in your heart. And you and God together make a majority. Let's bow together. Folks, would you just extend your hand toward these that have come forward this morning? We're praying for them because they've made themselves available to God. Lord Jesus, you see these who are still in need of a miracle in their lives. And you are a miracle-working God. You delight in what we think to be impossible. And so, Lord, I'm praying, first of all, for patience. God, give us godly patience to wait on you to accomplish your purposes in each of our lives. And secondly, God, I'm praying that you would give us the faith to believe. The faith to believe that you can do what you are putting in our hearts to do. We just make ourselves available to you this morning. Jacob, lead us in that song again. Here in your presence.